Hi, thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we're going to talk about power dynamics and the unequal distribution of risk and reward with Sokpriya Yan, also known as Strayon, and Rachel Fowler of Tonelay. This is part two of our two-part series. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Lauren Hill. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. And this week, we're excited to talk to Rachel Fowler, founder of Tonelay. Today, we're speaking with Rachel about power dynamics in fashion supply chains, the unequal distribution of risk and reward between investors, brands, and manufacturers, and how we work to build a more equitable system. Hi, Rachel. We're so thankful that you're joining us today. Thanks for coming on Unspun. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, in our first session, we asked Strayon who she believes is responsible for making sure workers' rights are upheld and respected. Who do you think is responsible? I mean, I think that this is a systemic problem that is has been designed so that nobody takes responsibility and that everybody can feel like it's not their fault because there are so many decisions made along the way that impact why people are not getting paid appropriately and compensated appropriately for their work. And, you know, any one player in the system can say that they are not responsible. And that's partially true. But I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to a system that's been designed so that nobody has to face the consequences directly. And nobody has to look into the, you know, at the end of the day, I think that all of us are responsible. (laughs) And, you know, we all have to take accountability on certain levels. So I do think that, you know, there are very structural and systemic changes that need to happen to ensure that wages are appropriate. But we need to tackle like the system as a whole, as opposed to these individual siloed initiatives, which unfortunately are not going to tackle those systemic inequalities. So I'm curious then a follow-up question to that. You know, if we all have responsibility and it's we have different responsibilities based on our location in the industry, who do you think has the most leverage to create impact, whether that's negative impact or positive impact? I mean, I think with all with all systems that have structural inequity, we have to look at who has the most power and privilege. And I think those people have the most power to create, you know, to create change as well. So it does need to be, and the people who are benefiting most from the inequity are the ones who are most responsible for creating it. I believe, even though there's lots of other players who support that, I think we can look, you know, essentially up the chain. You know, I think the word supply chain is not my favorite, but I think it does describe, and the the reason I don't like it is because it's very hierarchical, but I think it does accurately describe the way the fashion industry runs. And so when I say up the chain, I mean, you know, not in an ideal world, but in how things currently exist, that it is very hierarchical. And those with the most power are the ones who have always had the most power. And, you know, in in this kind of global colonialist capitalist context, I think that the investors and 
the people who finance these systems are the ones with the most power. And it's a group that we really don't talk about a lot. And and even shareholders of these big companies, you know, I think that if you have a mutual fund, for example, if you have an investment, if you have a retirement fund, then you are probably an investor and a shareholder in one of these companies. There's this divorce between, you know, our everyday day-to-day actions and the way that we participate in systems and the consequences of those actions. And so it's very easy for people to feign ignorance or just not investigate or not understand, you know, where their money's going, for example. But at the end of the day, like it is the responsibility of the people with the most money and power and privilege to do that research and to understand how their money is being invested. So even if you're an average person who has, um, in America, who has, is trying to save up for retirement, it is on you to research, you know, how those funds are being invested. But of course, you know, that's different from the, you know, founders and shareholders of these large corporations who actually most of them aren't founders. They're mostly private equity funds and, you know, (laughs) the stock market and these people who trade and, and all of these businesses, they are the ones who at the end of the day, I think the capital structures really control how risk and reward are distributed. So I'll give you an example. You know, investors typically like to invest in companies that are low risk and high reward, meaning not a lot of people on the payroll. So not a lot of employees to deal with because that's messy. The less people you employ and the more profit you make, the better. So that's in direct opposition to investing in manufacturing, right? So, and manufacturing, you know, in the kind of capitalist context, brands and IP, intellectual property, designs, technology are all valued or sort of the ideas are valued more highly than the labor that goes into creating a product. So when you look at the value of a a fashion product, it's tied to the value of the IP not the actual labor that goes into it. And again, this is all by design, right? Because investors, okay, why is it valuable to invest in IP? Well, IP is as valuable as somebody says it is. It's like a stock, right? Like stocks Mm -hmm. go up and down based on how much investors think a stock is worth, not based on like- Actual value. Well, I mean, what is actual value, right? But that's what I mean. It's like, it's not tied to the labor that goes into that product. It's not tied to the quality of the product. It's not tied to how useful the product is. Like all of these things that we used to have nowadays, it's like, well, how much can I sell this brand for, right? So I think at the end of the day, like the investors are driving this race at the bottom because they want to create brands that are highly profitable, meaning like the intellectual property, what the the IP is more valuable than the end at the end of the day than the physical product. And I think that's a big part of the reason why you have this divorce between manufacturing and brands, because the brands realize like I can sell an idea and an idea like the Nike swoosh is way more valuable than the shoes like the actual labor of the shoes that it goes on, right? And so by putting that, you know, symbol on a product, they can actually sell that product. They can completely divorce the quality and the, you know, the labor and the physical like making of that and the materials. They can completely divorce that from the value of that product. I think that investors drive this race to the bottom by saying, 
you know, we don't value like these, the actual labor and the, and that's why they're not investing in, you know, manufacturing and manufacturing doesn't turn a quick profit margin the way that brands can. And manufacturing is considered to be risky. And financially it's like manufacturing is like, how well can you do this thing? Whereas branding is like, well, if we can get people to believe that this design or this brand is like valuable, then it's sort of infinite. The sky's the limit. And at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the top 10 richest people in the world, six out of those 10 have made their money in whole or in part from the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. And all but one of them are white men. <laughs> and there's all of the men on the top 10, all of the people on the top 10 richest people in the world list are men. And so when you look at that, it's like, well, who is gaining and who is benefiting from this situation? And some of these same brands were the ones who, the same brands who have made these men fabulously wealthy have refused to pay their worker. I mean, they have refused to pay for orders to their suppliers during the pandemic. And it's like, yeah, okay, your company doesn't have the money in it or something, but it's because you actually like have made yourself so vastly wealthy. (laughs) And extracted, you know, all of these resources and all of this money. And then you can't turn around and compensate the people um, who made you that wealth in a time of, you know, struggle. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, like, I think that we need to look, like, look to those people who hold the, who really hold the most power and hold them the most accountable because yes, we all do contribute to systemic harm in various ways. And while we're also, a lot of us are also victims and of that system at the same time, you know, I don't think it's necessarily either or, but I do think it's layered and the people with the most power and who have extracted the most from these situations have the most responsibility to address that harm. And as a a brand founder, you mentioned a little bit about brand responsibility I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on what brand responsibility is in this system. I think it's an interesting dynamic when you think about brands who have investors versus brands who are independently owned and the the differences in pressures that are on companies who have these external investors whose goal is growth and minimal risk, high reward yeah. investments. I mean, I think it's it, to be honest, it is, and I don't want to like shirk blame from founders because there are some founders who really don't do things well. But I also think that founders of fashion brands are in kind of a tough position a lot of the time because essentially to grow, you need capital. And the only capital that's out there has all these strings attached that are going to force you to compromise your ethics. And even in the so-called impact investing world, there are a lot of investors who are like, oh, well, we want you to... like They've been told that they can continue the same capital systems that don't align with sustainability. I mean, they're, they're trying to fuel growth that's unsustainable. And so these investors are kind of thinking, oh, well, all we have to do now is look for like impact-driven businesses to invest in, but we want them to make exactly the same amount of returns in the same amount of time. And my point is that those types of returns are fundamentally unaligned with sustainability because you just can't grow a manufacturing business sustainably and make a 3x to 10x return in, you know, three to five years. Like that's just fundamentally impossible with manufacturing. It's possible with a brand, right? It's not possible with manufacturing. But the thing is that the manufacturers are the ones who are doing the sustainability work. So investors investing in brands 
and wanting them to grow at this pace that is not sustainable with actually truly sustainable manufacturing. Anyway, I think you see what I'm saying. It's, it's a big problem, right? It's like, and so I've had lots of conversations with investors who in theory want to invest in Tonelay, but when I tell them like, no, I'm like, listen, you will not make a 10x return in three to five years. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that because I'm what I'm, I'm going to tell you is that that's not possible if you truly believe in sustainable manufacturing. Another thing is that investors really love to invest in technology. Well, why? Because they can sell the tech, like the way that they see it is like, oh, I've once I invest and I just develop this technology, I can sort of essentially sell it infinitely, right? You're selling a patent or you're selling whatever. But like if the manufacturer's can't afford to buy that technology or if the manufacturers don't have the money to actually transform their factory to use that new technology, well, that technology then doesn't get implemented and doesn't help anybody. And we've been, you know, I've had investors come to me and say, well, what, like, can you just make like a technology that we can invest in? And I'm like, listen, we already know how to recycle fabric. We already know how to treat our workers better. Like these are not complicated problems. The thing is you have to accept that you're going to make less money. No one wants to hear that. Right. (laughs) And I I get so frustrated. I mean, I know about like incredible technologies that are absolutely locked up. No one can use them because manufacturers cannot afford to invest in them because they have to trans. I mean, it requires a radical transformation of a factory and nobody wants to put in the money to do that. And because brands aren't invested in the factories, you know, and the brands are also, the brands are on this quarterly system. So they're not going to take their money and put it into a factory to get a profit in like 10 years. Like the whole system is, is antithetical to that. Right. So the money is just not flowing to the plate. It's not even about the price paid per item. It's this like long-term vision that no one has. And it's all tied to the capital system that is on this like either quarterly, if you're in the stock market, it's a quarterly system where you have to make a profit every quarter or on like a three to five year timeline with, you know, private equity and venture capital where you're, you know, as a founder, you're essentially expected to grow your company by 10 times and then sell it to somebody else. And so when I was talking to investors, it was like, oh, well, who are you going to sell your company to in three to five years? I'm like, you're kidding, right? Like, do you see any fashion companies on the market? They're going to buy Tonelay and actually like keep our values. And they're like, oh, well, you can cross that bridge when you come to, I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) no, we're not doing that. (laughs) So then they just like, you know, run away and they try to go find some. But I think, I think like founders are in a tough position though, because only capital out there is like, unfortunately like that. And so then, you know, you either have to like leverage a lot of debt, personal debt usually, or you have to just basically not grow. And then if you can't get to scale, then maybe your company will fail because that's how the system is set up. So I think that's kind of like a lose-lose situation. And that's why I really push it back to the capital markets, because I think at the end of the day, like founders are so beholden to that. Like I have chosen on purpose to not scale my company because not to say that we're not scaling, but that we're growing slowly because that's aligned with sustainability. But I could take money from people, but what's that going to do in, you know, two to five years? Like, I mean, we saw what happened to Everlane. We saw what happened to Reformation. And that is a direct result of the way that they raised money. Totally agree. <laughs> so, so interesting. Enough. You know, they were, they were in kind of difficult places during the pandemic this last year. So it doesn't, there's a lot of ways to measure success for a brand. 
Um, exactly. And it's like, at the end of the day, like, you know, I think, I think with, with Everlane, I mean, I remember, so at the time when they came out and they, you know, they were, had the whole thing with the union, right. And how they were accused of union busting. And also there came out that there was all this racism within their company. They made a statement early on in the pandemic, basically saying, oh, well, we're really hurting financially. And I was like, how is Everlane hurting financially? First of all, e-commerce is booming right now. Secondly, everybody wants like comfortable work from home, appropriate stuff. That's exactly what Everlane does. There's no way that their numbers are that down. What's happening is that behind the scenes, the investors, I'm 100% guarantee you, the investors are saying, oh, you know, you got to be careful because there could be a difficult time coming and we don't want you to spend money on this. this. It wasn't that their sales were down. I'm hundred percent sure. It wasn't that their sales were down. It was that their investors behind the scenes were like, pull in your resources, you know, shut down the, you know, and we, we need to just like hone in and do whatever. And, and like, this is just investors trying to protect their assets. This is not about like, oh, our sales are down. Cause I'm sure like their sales were probably doing great. Yeah. based on what I was seeing with like the traffic online and everything else. And I mean, I saw that immediately. Other people picked up on it too. I, you know, but I think that's say. the thing. It's like so much more driven by that than it is by just like actual sales on a day-to-day basis. And that kind of contraction of, of canceling orders and just the situation that happened in the supply chain do you think that brands are starting to undo the harm that has been done in this last year? You're a little closer to the supply chain. Have you seen things start to turn around, canceled orders, you know, starting to be remedied or people getting paid for uh, invoices that weren't paid during that time? I think there's no way to undo that harm except for a mass reparations. <laughs> like... I mean, I think the problem is like these factories on are on such tight cash flows. You know, I looked it up a few years ago and it might be different now, but the average profit margin of a garment factory is 3%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can fluctuate so much. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, Kim has pointed out really well with her podcast is that basically like the factories, you know, if you get, let's say your factory has a capacity of 100,000 units a month, you can't really produce more than 100,000 units a month. So how do you land exactly that many orders every single month, right? Like it's impossible to balance that. So you're always going to either, you're going to have this, this issue where you have a fixed capacity, but you need, you, you have a fixed capacity and you also have fixed costs. But the problem is it's all fluctuating based on orders. And so like, even when people ask, like, I mean, people ask me this, they're like, oh, how much did someone get paid for this exact item? And I'm like, well, it's, very much not that simple because we like pay our staff a salary regardless of what happens. And if they mess up a product, we still pay them for that product. If people take um, 10 days of vacation because it's come new year, they're still getting paid, right? But we're not producing anything. So our cost of goods fluctuates and every every factory's cost of goods fluctuates because they have a fixed capacity, whereas the brand's orders can be, you know, very up and down. So my point is that basically, you know, I think when factories who are already operating on these like very, very tight margins have months and months of canceled orders. And not only that, but like also, you know, the fact that some of these orders were already produced and shipped and haven't been paid for. (laughs) 
you know, and when they, these, these factories, yeah, like maybe they were solidly profitable before that, if they were like, I mean, the factories that are ever making like very much more than like a 20% profit margin are few and far between, you know, even they, like, do they have cash reserves to pay for like so many months of, of, you know, like payroll essentially. And, you know, I think how can people overcome that? And when they don't have that capital to like invest, which is not built into their pricing, because again, the brands, like the, the profit is built into the, into the intellectual property of the brands, again, going back to the structure of how cash flows. So I don't know. It's like, how can people recover from that? Where are they going to get the capital to keep their factory afloat while these orders aren't coming in? And then if brands come in and say, oh, now we want to place an order, but we're still not going to pay you until like a month after you deliver it. How are they going to have the capital to even like produce these orders? You know, it's just, it's not even necessarily about just paying for the orders. It's about rectifying this like fundamental inequity that allows factories to take all the risk and make tiny profit margins while the brands basically can fluctuate their inventory, which is the biggest sort of risk they have is like to buy too much inventory. They can adjust that risk, whereas the factory can't because they have that fixed capacity. So I think how would they rectify this? Well, they would need to make investments, make long-term investments in their factories, which no one's going to do. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, if the pandemic has helped to magnify that risk and reward are not equally shared throughout the value chain, are you hopeful at all of of the industry shifting to look at the power dynamics and how they contribute to dysfunctions in the supply chain? You know, I feel mixed about it. I think on one hand, yes. In the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I was working with there were a whole bunch of people who really wanted to kind of get the word out that, okay, these garment workers are losing their jobs because brands are not paying their factories. So that resulted in like remakes pay up campaign and a number of other initiatives to try to get, you know, this information out there. And I was doing a lot of work with them and trying to support those endeavors. And I think that they're really important and they have put pressure on brands to, you know, pay for orders. And I think that is really great. But at the same time, I think it's not enough because it doesn't fix like these factories are in more of a hole than they were going in. And so maybe they got a few months of revenue back, but like, that's not enough. Like it's actually, they're in a worse position, a much worse position, even if they've had some of their orders paid for. So I think, you know, and we talk about how, you know, with the language around these campaigns, it's like, well, this brand's not paying their workers or that brand's not paying their workers. And I think that erases a little bit the dynamic between the negotiations essentially between the brands and suppliers and that, you know, we can't just say, well, these workers aren't getting paid. It's like, we need to identify like the structural issues in how these negotiations happen. And so erasing the factory or the supplier or the factory manager is not helping, I think, consumers to understand like why these inequalities are happening. And so just saying, like, I think this brand's not paying their workers is is overly simplistic and doesn't really get at like the fundamental long-term structural problems because it suggests that, oh, all they need to do is pay their workers. And that's so oversimplified and not accurate because it doesn't actually rectify like the unfairness that was there to begin with. How do we reevaluate or redistribute this power along the entire supply chain? What do you think is like the first step in that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that these conversations are really complicated. So one, I would just encourage customers to try to dig deep with their understanding of like, I think it's really important for people to understand like the complexities of the fashion business, because otherwise we come up with simplistic solutions that don't address the fundamental problems. And again, there's many things that need to happen for these things to change. So there, I think it has to be a combination of, you know, government regulation. I think a big part of the problem too is, is sort of that, you know, American corporations can go around the world like acting with impunity and they have no, you know, if there was regulation about the goods coming into America that were produced in these other countries, like for example, I don't think an American corporation should be able to act overseas in a way that they're not allowed to act in America, right? Like that seems really simple. How do we not have a regulation about that, right? So that's, you know, that's like one form of regulation. Like how do we regulate the products coming into this country? And the same is true for Europe. I think European companies are probably more uh, regulated, but even still, mm-hmm. they're still participating in this kind of colonialist system of like, well, we can't, we're not going to do it to our own people, but let's go over there and it's fine if we do it over there. <laughs> and so, yes, I mean, it's own, obviously, you know, hinted at that, but So I think regulation is one part. I do think activism is really important in getting, you know, consumer awareness, but I do think some of the activism is misguided because they are, you know, talking about these simplistic narratives. And I think we can miss the bigger picture. You know, I think there has been some backlash to the idea like of conscious consumerism, which I think is, is fair. Like just buying a product that's slightly more sustainable is not going to fundamentally like fix these dynamics. I mean, I think that that's also important. I think you can try to buy products that are more aligned with your values at the same time as fighting the structural problems. And that's kind of the approach that I take. And I mean, even with Tonle, it's like Tonle is just one brand. We can only do so much, but at least we can set, you know, an example of how things can be done differently. And at the same time, actively use our marketing as education to inform the broader industry about there are other ways that things can be done. So I think that there's a lot of different parts that can, you know, help contribute to changing things. But I think ultimately, you know, a long-term view and with sustainability, it always has to be like with a long-term view in mind. And I think at the end of the day, questioning those capital systems that are, you know, designed to produce quick returns is where I think we need to be targeting our energy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want to see impact investors who are like, oh, I just care about like making it slightly more sustainable. Like I want investors who are going to say, I'm willing to actually invest money in systems that are radically different, you know, and maybe that means like investors go directly to factories and invest mm-hmm. in D2C brands where the suppliers can talk directly to the consumers themselves. You know, I think I love that. I've been... Yeah. And I mean, I've actually, so um, I've talked to a couple of manufacturers who are trying to start D2C brands. And I think that that's like a really amazing opportunity. Like, yeah, they are the ones who know how to make a quality product. They should be selling that product directly to people. Why does it have to go through a brand? Right. But, you know, it's like, how do we get consumers to actually care about that? <laughs> and I think part of the narrative of like, oh, brands not paying their workers it allows a customer to, let's say somebody buys from Tonle, right? And they think like, oh, I'm saving or helping like a worker by like buying this more ethical product. That still enforces hierarchy, 
right? It's like now, instead of being the exploiter, they get to be the savior. But really, it's not either one of those things. It's a customer, in my opinion, is a collaborator in their, yes, they're supporting our work, but they're also getting like something out of that equation. And so how do we reframe these conversations? You know, on one hand, it's theoretical, but on, on the other hand, it's it's not. It's like, how do we reframe these conversations to be about equity in, in every sense? So when a person buys something from us, you know, even like the idea, like the customer is always right. That's a hierarchical notion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, should a customer be able to go and like abuse people so they get what they want and like be told that it's okay? Like, no, right? Of course we don't think that, but that's the essence of the phrase, the customer is always right. So we we say to our customers, we say, no, you're not always right. And actually like, here's how we want you to think about buying our products. Like you're not saving anybody by buying something from us, but you do get to participate in a system that's more ethical and you get to wear awesome clothes that, you know, you feel good about putting on your body. And at the same time, a person is getting paid a fair wage for that thing. So it's an, it's an exchange that is based on equity and mutual benefit. From your perspective, knowing what you know, operating Tonelay, which is a brand and manufacturer, and with the critique that you have of the industry, you know, we talked a lot at the beginning about investors holding a lot of power especially in their relationship to brands. And then that trickles down to brands' relationships with manufacturers, which trickles down to relationships between manufacturers exactly. and Exactly. Thank you. That's <laughs> You got it. <laughs> so then from your perspective, if we were to create, if we were to try to change the system, what are the recommendations that you would give? And that's a complicated question because there are a million things that we could do. Sure. What are your priorities? I mean, I think the first thing is like, I would bring it back to, each person to reflect on their own relationship to power and how that impacts how they make their decisions. So, you know, what is your participation in this system and how might you be contributing to harm? How might you be contributing to, you know, incentive structures that are not aligned or, you know, and, and so that's where I think like, it's really important for every, each individual who's participating in the system, which we all are because the clothing industry affects all of us how might you be contributing? Um, whether that is as, oh, well, maybe some of my, uh, <laughs> you know, some of the companies that are in my stock portfolio are like, you know, participating in harmful behaviors and this and that way. Or is it, you know, the clothing that you buy that you're supporting companies that don't necessarily align with your values? Or is it, you know, as a brand owner, how might you be creating, you know, unhealthy incentive structures with your suppliers that might actually be causing them to want to hide things from you, right? So a lot of times we tend to look outward and say, you know, who's doing what and how can we hold them accountable? But we don't start with ourselves. And I think that that's, it's really important to examine your own proximity to power and how you might be, you know, benefiting from harm or per- perpetuating it and probably some of both. So I think first it has to start with that exam, internal examination. And then, you know, the other thing that we realize is like, we are all participating in it. So how do you, there's no good choice in a system that is so fundamentally harmful, but how can we just learn to make better and better choices each day? And again, I know this is kind of getting very um, theoretical and philosophical, but to get to something more concrete, I think, you know, I guess I would speak to brand owners because they're the ones who I have the most, you know, I feel like the most knowledge of and can speak to that. 
I think it's really important to think about how do you address power dynamics within your business and how are you making sure that in every way from your marketing to your pay scales to, you know, your projections of your, you know, inventory and your orders and your contracts with your suppliers, you know, are they long term commitments that you stick to? How are you distributing the risk? Are you building in a profit margin for your suppliers so that they can save money and have their own cash reserves? Like, have you analyzed, you know, what of your own behaviors and what of your own practices might be creating incentives that that are harmful? You know, so I think those are some of the things. And then, you know, for founders who are trying to raise capital, you know, I think that it's really important to really, really think about the type of people you want to work with and what those investors are going to require of you and of your production. And I think really hold your ground with raising money because I think nothing's going to change unless there are enough founders who say, no, I'm not going to accept that kind of capital. But you know, it's that's not so simple. And I get that it's a really hard situation. But I do think if more people kind of just didn't accept the status quo and said, you know, cause I know founders who have said, oh, well, you know, I have to take this money because it's going to enable me to do like what I want to do. And I can scale my business and do these things, but like at what cost at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> for me, like I was, I do, we do have some investors at Tonelay, but they are very values aligned. And I was very clear that like, this is what we do and making sure that they really got that and we're on board with that. And so I turned down a lot of people. Like I could have raised a lot more money, but I'm really glad I didn't because it would have come back to bite me in the age of COVID. (laughs) So, you know, because I didn't have investors being like, you have to do this or like, as what my investors would have told me to do is to close the production and hold on to the brand. And because I have good investors, I didn't have to do that. And so anyway, I guess again, like, I think I just want to draw it back to like each of us, like doing our internal work so that we can figure out like how we're participating in these harmful systems, have accountability and try to go forward in the best way possible. Yeah. Thank you for that, Rachel. So as we close the show, we're hoping that you will share and we kind of have a hunch what it will be, but we're hoping you'll share your unspun hero with us. And we recorded Strayon's last week and it was you I mean, I just, I feel like whenever we have, like, I think Strayon did such a great job with that conversation, but she just, she's so humble and she is, but she's such a badass. Like, I can't even communicate like how amazing she is. And she's really been the glue that's like held things together, especially in the last year. And that's why, you know, I wanted to bring her on as a partner because she as just like made totally her own and like treated it like it is her business. And I was like, well, you're already doing this. And, you know, she's like, oh, thank you for making me proud. I'm like, no, no, no. You just like went and acted like a partner. And then I'm just acknowledging that that's what you're doing. (laughs) She is just such an incredible leader. She brings um, people together in this powerful way. Like she's just really good at like having compassion, but also holding people accountable. And I think that she has really created that, like she's really been a major force in creating that culture at Tonelay. So 
Yeah, I we, hope that we've talked a lot through. about, uh, I mean, everything today, power dynamics, uh, how to incentivize the industry, all of the different stakeholders that have to be on board and responsible for improving workers' rights. And I do think that it is really important to have equitable ownership structures and your tone lay modeling that is a really awesome thing to see happening in the industry. So it's wonderful that she's your own spun hero because it represents exactly that. Yeah. And I want to just highlight one more person, if that's okay. So one person who I started working with at Tonle from the beginning, like she was the first person I met who I started working with. Her name is Ravi and she is incredible. When we first met, so she had, uh, I was introduced to her by counselors from an NGO for nonprofit. And you know, I could tell that she was kind of skeptical of me, like, okay, it's like this white girl coming in. She says she's going to do this and that, but like, you know, I'll just see what happens. And she was like a little skeptical, which was totally fair, (laughs) but she also just like embraced me as a person and just like got to know me. And I think that was super, that was like really hard in, in Cambodia, especially because there is just such a problematic relationship between like white, run um, aid organizations and Cambodian people. And she just like, I felt like she really gave me that lesson in like mutual, in reciprocity and in relationships that are mutually beneficial, that people can bring different things to the table. That might be very different skill sets. It might be very different, you know, talents, but that like we support each other. And this is a business that is about mutual benefit, about reciprocity and respect. And having her also like embrace me and respect me and love me was, and just realizing that like, I'm gaining, I thought I was coming here to help, but actually this is like, it's not about helping one person saving another, but about us having this dynamic that is equitable. And that is like, that we are both benefiting from. She would call me out when I was like doing something that like, wasn't, you know, right for whatever reason. She would hold me accountable and she's still working at Tonle today. And she still kind of has that like matriarch figure in the workplace and everybody just like listens to her, you know, but they also like, she's also just so loving, constantly like supporting people, but she will also like call people out when they need to be called out. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your perspective on the industry. There's so many important things that need to happen right now to push the industry forward. Thank you so much for having this conversation. It was really great to dig into a lot of these, you know, topics. So I appreciate you being here for this conversation as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this episode's guest, Rachel Fowler, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow Tonelay on IG at Tonelay Design. To join the conversation, leave us a comment. To learn more about us, follow us on IG at We Are Population or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.